0: Welcome. Here at The Bridge Church, we exist to help you connect to God, grow with family, and serve our city. We hope today's message will allow you to grow deeper in your connection to God. Enjoy the message. Praise God. Well, why don't we give it up for our mothers in the building real quick? Praise God for Kelly. Let's give it up for Kelly again with that wonderful song. I think we're going to put that out uh, on our video this week. So please share it and like it and whatnot. And uh, it was a really awesome song. Thank you for putting that together, Kelly. Um, today, we are going to talk about mothers, but this comes inside of a bigger conversation we've been having about Moses and the life of Moses. She understanding Moses, you have to understand that this is a man that is facing all different types of trials. And he's having to buck up against an Egyptian system that is intending on taking him out. In fact, he's been raised in Pharaoh's home. Pharaoh who hates the Jews. But meanwhile, Moses is a Jew himself. And he has this identity crisis because he's a Jew wanting to rescue Jews, but his grandfather is the one that oppresses Jews. And so here he is in an identity crisis. Moses has to learn more and more about who he is about how he leads. And so God calls him while he's in the desert, out in Midian. And he has to wrestle with, is he really the kind of leader that can deliver the Israelites? And then we see that he actually delivers the Israelites and then he comes up against the Red Sea. And as he comes up against the Red Sea, God gives him the confidence and the trust to know that whenever there is a Red Sea he's coming against, God can remove it and have them walk on dry ground. But today we're gonna to look at how Moses was brought up, how he was raised. Moses is part of a family. Moses' is his dad, Moses' is his mom. His dad's name is Amram. His mom's name is Jochebed. He has a sister named Miriam, and he has a brother named Aaron. And as Moses is raised, as he comes to life, he's being raised under a system that's really intended to kill him. Look here in the book of Exodus chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Exodus chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further. And when war breaks out, They will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Now, Pharaoh has known a man named Joseph, and Joseph was a Jew himself. As the Jews began to grow and multiply in size, the Pharaoh that knew Joseph thought well of the Israelites because he knew Joseph. But when there was a Pharaoh that didn't know Joseph, well, then he started to look out in this little area called Goshen, which is right outside of Egypt. And he started to recognize the growth of the Israelites. And what it says here is, as as, as the Pharaoh is noticing their size, he says, let's deal shrewdly with them, meaning he probably caught them up in some kind of business deal. And before they knew it, they were being oppressed and they were enslaved to the Egyptians, But his motivation in enslaving and impressing them was one thing. They're too big. And if they grow too much in size, they'll one day fight against us. Moses is going to have to deal with this man Pharaoh later. But what drove Pharaoh? What drove Pharaoh was fear. He was afraid of loss that he wouldn't be known as the superpower anymore. He was afraid to being humiliated and exposed. He was afraid of losing control. Pharaoh is driven by this fear. But realize this, that there is a Pharaoh mindset in all of us. You see, because Pharaoh thought that his strength only came from his size. He thought to himself, We are the largest community out here, and as long as we're the biggest and the strongest, then no one can mess with us. And the minute someone showed size and strength, he became intimidated. And so there Pharaoh is saying, now I must oppress those that are getting large. Well, church, I know Pharaoh is a bad guy, but realize this, that within all of us, this Drivenness by fear can happen when we see other people who have size, strength, skill sets that are like ours, and we become intimidated by them. And our fears drive us to draw away from those people or to have to overtake those people because our identity is in our size or identity is in our skill or just the mere idea that you think you're the best. Now, I am going to tell you something that mom probably didn't tell you, praise God, or maybe your family didn't tell you, but this is the unadulterated truth. You are not the best. No, you're not. You're not the best. You're not the best singer. You're not the best actor. You're not the best teacher. You're not the best designer. You're not the best, and you'll never be the best. You'll never be the best. And, and, and the reason why I can fundamentally tell you that is because when you spend all your time, now, if you are running a race, if you were an athlete, if you're in a tournament, that's quantifiable. But when you are in certain areas, certain job sets that there's really no champion, then what ends up happening is you're always living life trying to quantify your worth next to other people. And what you try to do is you have to keep telling yourself, I'm the best. I'm the best. And if someone's the best, that means someone else is the worst. You see, you find your identity in size. You find your identity in strength. You find your identity in being bigger than someone else. And I, and I only put this here because oftentimes you'll be surprised how much fear motivates people to be better. Here's what you ought to do. Stop trying to be the best and start trying to be your best. You see, when you give your best to God, no one can quantify that. You know how much time you put in. You know how much you're doing. But only between you and God you serve. And when you live in this mentality of always trying to be better, one day you're going to see somebody. You're you're good, right? One day you're going to see somebody better, and it's going to rock you. It's going to scare you because they stole your identity. Now, here's the truth. Find your identity in Christ. Give your best to him. But never think that you can't be driven like Pharaoh was driven. Never think you cannot be an oppressive person. Because that mindset can be within us all. It's all how you see yourself and how you think you got to the place you are. That was all for free. I just want to do that as a side note. Exodus 1.12, <clears throat> here's what happens though. The people, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to, to, to dread the Israelites. So they brought fear to the Israelites. So now it's saying that the more that they tried to oppress them, they keep multiplying. The key words, they are multiplied and spread, meaning they keep having kids, they keep having children, And they're encamping in more area. So they're taking over more land. Pharaoh is becoming more intimidated because he's like, man, plan A, oppress the Israelites, enslave the Israelites. Well, plan A doesn't work. The people keep growing. That's his only fear is that they keep growing. So verse 15, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose name were Sifra and Pua. When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Now, there's a very powerful point here. These two women are Hebrews. They most likely oversee all the other midwives. Now, a midwife is one that would help the child be born. The stool that was there was literally there where a woman could sit, and then it would most likely have a hole there where the baby would come out, and she would sit there, and they would catch the baby. So what the Pharaoh was saying was, When you catch the baby, if you see it's a boy, kill him. Suffocate him most likely. Tell the mom it was a stillbirth. And that way we'll eradicate all the boys in Israel. These women hear this. And here's what they say to themselves. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt told them to do. They had a choice. I will either fear the king of Egypt or I will fear the king of kings. I will follow after the Lord or I will be intimidated by men. And they chose and they believed that it is greater to be in reverence and fear and awe of God than to follow after the king of Egypt. So they end up not killing the babies. But here's what they do. Verse 18 the king of Egypt summoned the midwives because he's seen all these little boys walk around, praise God. And he's saying, "Um, hey, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh and they said, man, them Hebrew women, they not like the Egyptian women now. They are vigorous and they give birth before the midwives arrive. So basically what they told him was, listen, these women, they pop them out too quick. We can't even get there to catch the baby, right? So it's this crazy moment, but the women are, listen, they're bold. Do you know these women could have been taken out like that? And they looked him dead in the eye. And they lied, but I'm sure God covers that somehow, praise God. and they they created they crafted a system together to oppose the system that was oppressing them. They got all the Hebrew midwives together and said, "Listen, just don't be there when they're born, and tell we'll, we'll we'll cover for you, and we'll tell the king of Egypt, we'll tell Pharaoh, we just can't make it. Our ladies can't make it there because the Hebrew women give birth so fast." Well, Plan B was kill the boys. Plan A, enslave the people. Plan B, kill the boys. Have the Hebrew midwives kill the boys. Well, then it says in verse 22 of Exodus chapter one, the Pharaoh decided to give this order to all his people. Key word, key phrase, his people. So now he's like, I'm not going to deal with the Hebrew midwives anymore. I'm just going to talk to my own people, my own Egyptians. And he says, every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So now we've moved. Now, no more dealing with Hebrew midwives. Soldiers, Egyptian people, you hear of a baby being born, you check on the gender. You find out it's a boy, throw him in the Nile River. This is the context of Moses' birth. This is the culture he's born into. He is literally being born into what is called infanticide, killing of children. His very existence is a risk, and yet he's born. Now it says in chapter 2, verse 1, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she saw him for three months. Now the word Hebrew in Hebrew for fine is the brother looked good, right? So she saw that he was a good looking kid. But at the end of the day, what what this is saying is the minute that her, his mom locked eyes on him, she decided to keep him for three months. What we understand then is most likely many of the Hebrew women were probably sending their kids off. The minute they found out it was a boy, it was like, get him out of here. I can't deal with him. I don't want to have him die. I don't want him thrown into the Nile. But what she decides is I'm going to keep him. And she locks eyes on him. You know, many mothers I've met they had a plan, what they thought they were going to do with their children. I know some women who wanted to give their child up for adoption, and then when they locked eyes on that baby, all their plans changed. I remember when we, <laughs> when we first had our first child, I, I, I had all these plans of what kind of dad I was going to be. And then I locked eyes on my child. And all my plans changed. I thought I was going to be this great leader, dad, authoritarian, do what I say kind of thing. I locked eyes on my first daughter, Faith, and I basically gave her my checkbook. I was like, do whatever you want, babies. (laughs) Have all of me kind of thing. She was going to send that baby away, and then she locked eyes on him. She saw him. Now, for those of you that aren't parents, let me tell you something. When you see that kid and you think you know what to do with them, let me tell you something. You know what? You know how you're still figuring out you? Yeah, you can't figure out kids if you can't figure out you yet. Praise God, okay? Children are difficult. And oftentimes those parents, that that patience you see in them or that thing you think they're not even focused on their kid, what it is is they are driven by a deep love. Parents take risks. They have courage that we can't even imagine because they locked eyes on their own baby. There's something special about that connection. Well, that's what happens here. That's what causes her to be against all odds and have this child there for three months. But this is a three-month-old baby. I don't know if you know much about three-month-old kids, but they're not quiet. And every baby's supposed to be thrown into the Nile River. And they're walking around in different tents, wondering if you got a kid. And after three months, Jacobed and Amram looked at each other and said, We can't keep this up anymore. We're going to have to send the baby off. Verse three of chapter two, but when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pitch, and then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Her sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Now I want to encourage you, particularly our moms, look what it says there in verse three, when she could hide him no longer. What this mom did was she created a bassinet, basically. She covers it in tar and pitch, meaning she made it floatable. She puts it into the Nile River. And oftentimes when this story is told, it's told like mom kind of put it in the river and let it float away. And she said, bye, hope it works out. But what actually happened is she puts it, the scriptures say, in the reeds, which is kind of this high grass almost, a place that's durable, a place where the baby would be protected and eventually would be seen by Pharaoh's daughter and rescued. When the mom could hide him and have him in her midst no longer, the only thing she could do is position him for success. Moms, moms moms-to-be, and anyone who will have a child someday, I want to encourage you to know that any parent who loves the Lord, we want to all position our kids to be independently dependent on Jesus Christ. We want to be able to send them off and know that they will identify with Christ and be confident in him. The scriptures say in Psalm 127 and four, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Look at the imagery there of the psalm and see the imagery of Jacobed in the Nile River. Jochebed understands I can only position you for success, but I've got to send you out. I can't have you here any longer. In the same way, Psalm 127, it says that kids are arrows in the hand of a warrior. Moms, you're the warrior, and the kids are the arrows to be shot out. And that means that we only have kids for a season. We only have them for a moment. And if we only have them for a moment, we have to realize then that the job of parents then It's to carve that arrow to the best of your ability so that it would float through the sky and hit the target. That we're really, what we're really doing is we're aiming for success, but we can't guarantee it. We, we want our kids to be godly and loving. We want our kids to be wise and strong. But we'll never see them become what they can become if we don't shoot them out. Imagine walking around all day with an arrow. You're like, see my arrow? This like arrows, beautiful, it's nice, got feathers on it, it's big, right? Arrows are not meant to be held, they're meant to be shot out. And that's kids. Kids are not meant to be perpetually protected. They're meant to be courageous. And parents, you will never fulfill your duty if you progressively stay in a position of overmothering or overparenting. We must send our kids out. Actually, that's the point. They're arrows meant to be sent out. One day we have to place them on that river. And so as parents, our job is just to straighten out what's crooked on that arrow. Our job is to make sure that 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 arrow floats through the air, which it's intended to be. It's intended to fly. And so we realize that children are a blessing, but they are only under our protection and provision for a season. So it's going to be a time to let go. And if we don't let go, we will ruin what God has intended for them. One of our uh, missionaries that does college ministry, one of the things he said was he gets kids coming into uh, the college all the time. And we started talking about what kids end up identifying with the Lord and what kids kind of stray away. And he says, you know, it's amazing. We get all types of church kids. We get missionary kids. He says, but there's one kid that always seems to all, like always still identify with Jesus. He says, it's kids who have parents who admit when they're wrong. And we asked him, what does that mean? Why did you say that? He says, well, a lot of times kids have parents who try to perform Christianity in front of them. But they don't actually show them the brokenness and inconsistency. So what happens is when they're shot out and they go to college and they see that they're not everything they thought they were, they pump the faith all together because they thought the faith was a performance, not brokenness. They thought it was all like upfront stuff. And so, and so for us, prepare our kids for being, to have a life of grace. Prepare our children to be shot out. And so here in Exodus chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, it says, Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. Well, most likely, most likely, this moment was built out because mom, Jacobed, knew I guarantee you mom had been watching for years Pharaoh's daughter bathed there. And so she said, I'm going to place it right here. Well, she saw the basket among the reefs. Verse six, she opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. And she says, this is one of the Hebrew babies. Well, then in verse seven, now, Pharaoh's, I'm sorry, uh, Moses' sister had been standing out by the riverbank this whole time. She was watching to see if her little brother would be taken up by Pharaoh's daughter. Well, in verse 7, it says, Then his sister, Miriam, asked Pharaoh's daughter. So Miriam is right there. She says... Watch this. Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? She's like, I know some people that could help this baby out. Like, I've noticed one mom I think would be a good fit. <laughs> so she's sitting there the whole time, right? Verse 8. She says to her, yes, go. She answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. So now Miriam goes get her mom brings her. Pharaoh's daughter says to her, now Pharaoh's daughter thinks she's a bad girl, right? So she says, take this baby and nurse him for me and I'll pay you. So she thinks she's like, take this baby and nurse him. Meanwhile, the mom is getting paid to raise her own baby. And I just want you to, I want to pause and help you to realize something. Slaves don't make income. Like, There was like, she was buying stuff and slaves were like, what is that money? We don't make money. So this whole situation turned around to now letting her child go to now getting income to raise her own baby. Now, so the woman took the baby. Jochebed takes this baby, nurses him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter. And he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Now I want you to notice one thing at the very end there in verse 10. When it says she named him Moses, that's Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter named him Moses. We actually don't know Moses' real name. We know the name that Pharaoh's daughter named him. The name Moses is a name that's derived by two words, one that's Hebrew and one that's Egyptian. One means to draw out and one means son. And so at the end of the day, what ends up happening here in verse 10 is powerful. She co-parents with a woman that's Pharaoh's daughter. And there she is every day. And the little bit of time that she can get with Moses she has to call her child a name she didn't call him. She has to raise her child in a space that she didn't intend to raise them. But with the little bit of time she had with her son, she imprinted the life of God on him. Every little moment that she had, she imprinted God on him. Every moment that she could teach her, teach him about Deuteronomy, she would press that on him. And how do we know that Jacobed was a successful mom? It says later in Exodus that when Moses grew older at the age of 40, he wanted to go down and deliver his people. Even though he was in the palace of the Egyptians, he identified with the Jews. He self identified as a believer in God, even though he was in Pharaoh's home. That's what we all want as parents. We want our kids to identify with Jesus when we're not around. When we don't have our influence in our hand in the same way around them and on them. And the unfortunate thing is basically par for the course is get raised in church, leave church, come back to church all broken because I tried stuff on my own and things didn't work out the way I thought they would. And life becomes hard. And we don't want that for our kids and we want them to have a different way. And so this is a successful mom, co-parenting, trusting God and eventually raising Moses to be the man of God that she wanted him to be. What is the takeaway that we can have if you're single, if you're married, if you don't have kids, like what's something that we can all draw from this because I can't guarantee that everybody will be a mom. I can't guarantee everybody will be married. I can't guarantee everybody will have children, man or woman. But what we draw from this is Hebrews 11, verse 23. It says, by faith, Moses, after he was born, was hidden by his parents for three months because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they didn't fear the king's edict. Do you see what it says there in Hebrews? In Hebrews, it says, the reason why they hid that child was one, they saw Moses was a good looking brother. But the other thing they said was, we're not afraid of the king. Do you know what it says about the Hebrew midwives? It says that the Hebrew midwives, when they told them to kill the kids, they did not fear the king. And at the end of the day, what we see is no matter what the king's edict was, the Hebrew midwives and the parents were never afraid of the king. But they were afraid of God. They did fear God. You see, because you obey who you fear, who you revere, who you see as an authority, who you see as big, who you see as strong, who you see as having ultimate power and ultimate control. And here we are intimidated by rent and bosses and people. Here we are intimidated by industries changing. Here we are intimidated. And we look here and we see that no matter what plan they had, plan A oppressed them. Plan B kill the babies. Plan C, get our own people to kill the babies. And every plan was thwarted because they trusted God. This woman trusted God and was paid to take care of her own kid. Proverbs 29 and 25 says, the fear of mankind is a snare, but the one who trusts in the Lord is protected. Hear hear the depth of that. When you trust more in fearing men and letting men uh, intimidate you, it's a trap. And the reason why it's a trap, because the Bible says that Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And the minute you allow one level of fear to take you, there are other levels that will take you more. So much so that you will live your life driven by fear. And it's a trap. And God has placed you, just as we saw with Moses being placed in front of the Red Sea, God has placed you in situations with people so that you would trust him. And do not take the bait. Do not become afraid by the thoughts of men. Do not become intimidated by, no matter what is set up against us as a society, There are no laws that we should be intimidated by. As a young black man in this country, I know that no matter how many degrees I get, if I make a quick move around the police, my life could end in a second. But I am unintimidated. I know that no matter what society creates, He who trusts in the Lord is protected. You're protected. No matter what law is created, you're protected. Do not be afraid. (laughs) Man, when I moved here, we moved here with no money. We didn't know anybody. And I walked into the office of a so-called church planning guru, praise God. And he looked at me and he says, how many people do you have on your team? I said, uh, me and my kids and, and me. Um, he said, you don't have anybody on your team? I said, no. He says, well, who do you, how, do you have enough money for a building? I said, I'm trying to make rent. Um, so. He says, well, I want you to know something. Three out of four church plants fail within the first three years. And he said that so that I would run away. I want to tell you this. Obviously, it's been four years later. Praise God. When I planted, there were three other guys that planted at the same time as me. I'm the only one left. Now, but I want to encourage your heart. That's not why I'm successful. I'm successful because when he told me that three out of four church planters fail, I was not afraid. Do not be afraid. I've already won. I've already won. My life is in Jesus. I can't be intimidated. I just can't. Rent, Rent can't intimidate me. Brooklyn, I mean Brooklyn, doesn't intimidate me. Praise God. I just, and there is a pharaoh intimidating some of you right now. And just like somebody in the street, when the evil one knows he can, he can smell fear on you, they try to intimidate you more, impress on you more, and it's a trap. Don't let it be. Don't let those thoughts capture your heart. Tonight, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not let fear be a snare. Father, we trust you. We love you. We can do nothing without you. Gracious God, gracious God, we praise you. We praise you for the work you have for us, God. We love you. And we ask you, God, to do your work in our lives. Even now, Jesus. Even now, Lord. I just pray for the one that is intimidated right now. Intimidated by the edicts of man. Intimidated by what people have said. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would identify the areas of mistrust, doubt, and fear in us. And I pray, God, I pray you'd cancel it out, God. And replace our fear with a greater fear. You will obey the one you fear, God. We trust you tonight, in Jesus name. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. We'd love to hear how God used this sermon to speak to you. Please take a minute to email us your story. Our email address is info at bridgechurchnyc.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by using at Bridge Church NYC or visit our website, bridgechurchnyc.com. Thanks again for listening to this week's message.